Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I am joined by Abby Smith-Ryan. Abby, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Corey. So I'm so glad to finally catch up with you. Yeah, we have we have, well, we have multiple connections. So you are a native Iowan. I am the best. Yes, place. yes, the best place, God's country. Although I live, I currently live in like the like the highest God's country in Northwest Iowa. I don't know if you knew that, but that I is do. truly every region of Iowa claims that it's God's country. But you know, Northwest Iowa. <laughs> but well, um, Iowa people are the best. People. Yes, Iowa people. And then, but also like, I guess our, our initial connection than just like ISSN meetings and NSCA meetings is that your brother, Jeremy, was my, when I was working at a gym in Des Moines, he was my replacement when I left. So that's how I got to know him. And then all he's like, starts, you know, my sister's in, into, you know, she's a professor and she's in the ISSN. I'm like, wait, who's your sister? Oh, it was Dr. Abby Smith Ryan. I'm like, wait, I, I know that name. So that's, that's our other connection. And so I've known Jeremy for, for quite a while. He, he's pretty good at what he does. Yeah, it's, it's very fun to see him do his thing. And it's just funny how tangential it all is, for sure. Yeah, and how like just a small, small of a community it is. 100%. So, okay, Abby. So before we get into the topic today, go ahead and give the listener your background, you know, what you've done educationally and professionally, and then what you're doing now. So, yeah, I'm a residential science nerd. I am a PhD. I did my undergrad at Truman State University, where I was a collegiate cross-country and track runner, and then did my master's and PhD at the University of Oklahoma. And then I took a professor position here at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, right from my PhD program. I've been here for 12 years, and now I'm a full professor. So I, I run a lab. Research is my primary job, but I teach and mentor grad students and spend a lot of time doing science and translating science. And so I definitely appreciate this piece. Further that, like one thing that I think is under underemphasized in the field is, so I have almost 200 publications, which no one reads. And so the importance of translating this piece is, is really important. And because of that and the involvement, I've been awarded many awards. I would say one most recently is the William J. Kramer Outstanding Sports Scientist Award from the NSCA, which that's you know, right. words are words, but I think it just represents the, it, it's great to have some of that science come out of the lab to try and have some implication. And that's what we, we try and do, or I try and do. In the yeah. Lab. Yeah. It's definitely an interesting dichotomy because, you know, people like yourself are hopefully leading the way with regards to what informs practice and what informs what coaches and trainers do. But, you know, published papers can be kind of inaccessible. And so, I don't know. I feel like I remember a, a stat of how many people on average read a published paper and it's not it's not great as far as driving motivation to want to like continue to publish but you have to like you, you just became tenured which is you know congrats on that and uh you have to do that. You have to keep publishing. You have to do things that get funding and and all that good stuff. So but this this piece is important. You know, the hope of this entire podcast is that we get the leaders in the field like yourself to have a have an avenue to get information out there. So what specifically, what what kinds of things does your lab look at? What do you research? 
Yeah. And uh, one thing with the publication piece, one thing I've been able to do just because I like it is our most recent yeah. ones have pretty pictures and very application of like, here, if you have an athlete, this is what you might want to do. Or, and so to maybe help with the, the reading and, and then my my work really involves exercise and nutrition to improve overall health, wellness, and performance with mm-hmm. a special interest in women's health over the last, I would say, five to, to seven years. Um, and it, it, it involves a lot of body composition measurement, appropriate kind of exercise intervention, and then what are some feasible and effective nutritional approaches that we can take to layer on to help us see better results for other goals. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's exactly what I want to talk about today. So that's a good, that's a good lead in. And yeah, this is a topic that's definitely gained a lot more, I guess, visibility and traction over the last several years, which is good. You know, I was a strength coach for three, three women's teams when I was a collegiate strength coach. And this is what was always in the back of my mind. Always. I'm like, okay, you know, should I be programming differently? Should I be making different recommendations? There seems to be some conflicting thoughts about this, but I want to do what's best for my athletes. And I just always had this sense and, and feeling like I shouldn't be just like having the same base recommendations for my men's teams versus my women's teams. That That's whether that comes to training for the athletic performance or the nutrition advice I was giving to them. So that's, I guess, where I would like to start. What are, I guess, what we know from, what we know currently, what are the major differences between men and women, like physiologically, what are the differences we really know about and what do those primarily stem from? Hey everyone, before we continue with the episode, I want to let you know how you can get 25% off some of the top supplement brands in the market. This includes brands like Thorn, Designs for Health, Designs for Sport, Clean, Nordic Naturals, and more. You can do this through creating a free account on Fullscript.com. Here's the cool thing about Fullscript. They have their own vetting process when it comes to all the supplements uh, on their website. So any company that wants to sell their products must prove to Fullscript that they have the highest quality manufacturing practices and protocols in place. When you go to the link in the show notes, you can create a completely free account and have access to all of Fullscript's supplements that they offer. You will also be able to see specific supplements that I recommend that I personally have vetted and I like their formulations. So again, Go to the show notes, click on the full script link, and you can make a free account. Thanks so much and enjoy the rest of the episode. I think, I mean, kudos to you for thinking about that when you had your college teams, because I'll be honest, as a female, as a former collegiate athlete, I never thought, like I never really even considered my cycle or hormonal contraception. Like we aren't taught to think about it that way. And I think when you when you really look at the physiology, nor has our field really shared and trained people to understand the differences in physiology to based out, you know, even what we're studying. And so there are differences, yet those haven't really made their way to textbooks, some of them. But, you know, when you think about your foundational knowledge, it's not integrated and hopefully we're seeing change. So yeah, absolutely. In, you know, more of the U.S. population is women as we <laughs> age. 
but so I, I do think there's an important conversation in that there are differences between males and females, but that doesn't mean that a female muscle won't respond uh, like a male muscle. When we think about some of the physiological differences that we know, there are differences in fiber type. So women tend to have more type one fiber percentages than type two, which then kind of plays into some fatigue resistance. There's some different metabolic differences. Women rely more on fat metabolism and are a little bit more efficient. There are some differences in blood flow. And one thing I'll note is some of the blood flow changes are also altered, let's say postpartum, which is a very growing field where we see more women post-pregnancy and postpartum that are still competing and performing. There, there are potentially some differences in what I call a neuromuscular activation, so the ability to activate the muscle. And so when we look, though, if I train a female muscle like a male muscle, that doesn't mean it won't respond. I think sure. of it more impacting things like potentially work-to-rest ratio or recovery or volume, some of those things. And so I don't want it to be like, oh, women can't respond the same. It's just sometimes recognizing that there are some baseline physiological differences that, yeah, we should probably start to consider, especially if you have a female that maybe isn't meeting their goals on your program that you design and have used in males. Do we need to make some modifications? So have these things, have these things gotten to the point where there should eventually be in the textbooks, I'm thinking you know, ultimately like maybe the CSCS or the NSA or like these major certification certifying bodies, should we have specific recommendations based on, on sex? So like I'm thinking when you're mentioning fiber type, fatigability, work rest ratios, well, we typically have one recommendation for what does that look like for strength? What does that look like for power? What does that look like for hypertrophy? Are we to the point now where we have enough evidence and data to say we need separate recommendations or where are we at with that? Yeah, I would say, unfortunately, we don't have enough data in women yet. But what I would say is what we should be integrating in these, you know, baseline certifications is some basic knowledge of the female physiology compared to male physiology, particularly when we think about the menstrual cycle. So hormonal changes across a month in our, our premenopausal. And then there's a lot of things that happen to a woman in perimenopause where hormones are not cyclical. And there's a lot of differences, especially you now, you know, many of your audience members may be like training younger and in collegiate athletes. But when we think about middle-aged women, most of them want to lose weight because they gain weight. And when we think about programming for them, it is important to understand the, the physiology. And even more so when we think about our younger women, 60% of women in the U.S. use some form of hormonal contraception. And, and so it's just sometimes even having an understanding of what that is and how it may impact what you're doing opposed to, oh, let's have all separate recommendations. I don't yeah. think we have that yet. Gotcha. Okay. So let's spend some time then with the cycle and the, and the hormonal environment that that creates. So could you just do a very brief overview if someone is just not familiar with the what happens, I guess, generally the quote unquote normal situation, which is becoming increasingly less normal for various reasons. What, what are the changes, I guess, the major changes? And then go into, you know, if that should impact training or if that 
does need to impact nutritional recommendations. Yeah. So I love the topic, particularly because women are now we're talking about it, you know, like let's actually just talk about periods for a second. And so I think a couple of terms to, to recognize is, is puberty in a, in a female is when she starts her menstrual cycle. Average age is 12. And, mm-hmm. you know, that can be delayed based on a lot of nutritional low energy availability, high exercise. But menstrual cycle generally lasts about 28 days. It can be shorter or longer with bleeding or menstruation usually lasting about, you know, five days. The reason that's important is what you do. It's it is very cyclical. So you have menstruation, which is what we call low hormone phase. And then you have ovulation, which is when a woman is the most fertile. She also feels her best. And then you have the luteal phase is a high hormone phase. It's right before menstruation occurs. It's usually a, you know, a week or so. And that's often when women feel their worst, meaning both physically and mentally. You know, I hate comments of, oh, they, she must be on her period. Which, I mean, I get it, but it's also very physiologically. And it's actually not when a woman's on her period. It's right before she goes on her period. And so that piece is really important to understand, especially if you are training women. Their sleep is is often impacted. Their definitely emotions are impacted. Their metabolic rate is higher. There's some thoughts that their protein turnover is higher. And so it's recognizing that you may have someone that isn't feeling their best, yet you're, you know, how have we periodized their training? And I'll come back to that in a second. I I think it's also important to understand. So from that peri or pre-menopause, women go into perimenopause, and that's when menstrual cycles become irregular. Average onset of that is 42 years old, up to 52 And I think that's a really important stage because women feel really terrible often during that time. And it's, I think it's because no one's talking about it. They all think it's them, Hmm. but it's hormones that are no longer cyclical. It's very like high and low and lots of those hot flashes impacting sleep. They, they do have some increases in body fat and losses of muscle. So really a group that can highly benefit from, you know, educated training. And then postmenopause is a single point in time when a woman loses her menstrual cycle for more than a year. And that's usually 52 and on. It can, it can happen at different times. But women generally sure. feel better during that time because now their hormones are all real low and more consistent. Um, yep. And we know that they have different needs than males, too. So those are our older women that are, you know, we're concerned about bone and, and muscle. Yeah. So, okay. yeah, I don't any anything I missed. No, that that's a that's a great overview for sure. And I just it's good to get the terms out there, make sure we define them just because, yeah, I mean, someone may not be familiar with with the terms. So let's then go back to, you know, talking about the the cycle. And you did mention there are times where, you know, when a woman might feel better, times where she might feel worse. And now I guess I'm not sure how recent the term is, but cycle syncing is something gets attached to this, if I understand that correctly. And that has led to certain recommendations being made. Uh, can you explain the concept of cycle syncing and then what does that mean for, for recommendations? Yeah. So, I mean, I think most importantly, one takeaway is not to have anyone, you don't have to memorize what the cycle is, but really asking your clients or your athletes, are you menstruating regularly? And also like, 
birth control? Are you taking hormonal contraception? Uh, and so that is some debate, you know, like in some states like Florida, they're not allowing you to ask that, where a lot of times what we find is that women don't often know. They don't know what type of hormonal contraceptive they're using or they've never paid attention to when they're menstruating. And so even before we think about applying it to training, a lot of times it's asking where where do we stand? Where do we know about our bodies? And And you as a coach there is some element of understanding and uh, of what what's going on because that can cause. And then For this sure. topic, yeah, of cycle syncing is is kind of contentious right now. And I think there's some pros in that we're talking about it, and you know, you're giving some space that women do need some special look at, you know, like some special conversation and approaches. The downside is I see a lot of programming that tells women like, oh, you you need to change your training based on your menstrual cycle. You should only do things like yoga in your luteal phase, which is just crazy. So you sh- you don't need to change your training around your menstrual cycle. But I do think we need to have a conversation about how does your training change and how does your body change around your menstrual cycle? Because that can impact how you feel and maybe how you respond. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think the other thing is the last thing we need to do is tell a woman not to exercise because she doesn't feel good. But at the same, you know, like, oh, you you have cramps or you're more sore. I think instead we need to have that conversation of, hey, how are you feeling today? And yeah. how should we modify or you didn't hit your PRs? Like, What are some other factors that go into it opposed to putting us in a box more or less? Yeah, for sure. So you do think that there maybe should be some alterations, just not extreme ones. Is that is that accurate? Well, I think we need to look at the individual. And okay. I think obviously this is my biased opinion. I think nutrition can overcome a lot of the physiological uh, aspects. And so, and I'm a realist too. Like I think about most people that are competing or training, you don't have the luxury of changing your training or when you compete. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think it it should be an important part of the conversation. And I think one thing that we also need more data on when we look at women and one thing that we're trying to explore is, for example, do ACL injuries happen more or less in a certain phase of the menstrual cycle due to laxity and hormones? We, we don't yeah. have that information yet. So would I change a, a training just across the menstrual cycle? No, but I, I do think that there's enough data to say that we might want to ask some specific questions and yeah. alter, you know, like think about some of the the adaptations that you see or soreness or some of our programming, some of those things to think about. Yeah. And this hints at, I think, a really interesting topic of autoregulation. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you're talking, like these these things apply to men too. Absolutely. Like men go through the same, can go through the same things. It's just might, the, the source might be different. It might just be lack of sleep. It might mm-hmm. be stress where they're not going to perform as expected on a day or they might not feel great. <clears throat> this is just a, another a consideration that needs to be accounted for. And that's where I think autoregulation can fit really nicely. If you have a program or a, a training style that's adaptable based on an athlete's readiness, whatever that may look like, uh, like, do you think that's an avenue that could, can help? Um, Absolutely. Yes. 
if you can tailor or gauge your athlete's readiness 100%. And I, I also think an important part of this is destigmatizing the menstrual cycle. So a lot of, you know, I, I know when I was competing, it was a badge of honor to lose your menstrual cycle, where we right. know that it actually <laughs> is somewhat helpful and protective. And so it's it's really not being afraid to ask and identify up front, okay, this is normally when I menstruate and here are some of the things to expect and vice versa. So, for example, in the luteal phase, which is right before a, a woman menstruates, is usually when a woman doesn't feel their best and it can come with extra edema. So kind of fluid retention, which increases risk of dehydration. There's also usually like an increase of 300 to 400 calories of metabolic rate. And so just okay. think about this, like this is, this is very real where a woman is like, wow, I, I don't, I feel kind of fluffy and soft. I'm not sleeping well. So I'm going to under eat because I'm, you know, I've also gained some water weight. And so I'm going to do my fasted training or whatnot. And, and so yeah. now we've exacerbated it when in reality yeah. we could say like, just Eat like eat the sugar that you're craving, put it post-workout or pre-workout where you're actually going to fuel yourself. And and then you really have to pay attention to the nutrient timing because you likely have some increased muscle protein breakdown. You're going to be a little bit more sore. And heck, you still, maybe none of that helps. Here's an extra off day or we're going to lower your volume to help you recover a little bit more. And that'd be during the luteal phase, correct? Potentially. Yeah, theoretically. And, and again, it's, there is some growing data, but I think the other element you have to say, and this is what I think about as a researcher, like that looks great when you have a 28 day cycle, but what about the rest <laughs> of the world when you're, you know, you have an IUD or uh, oral, oral contraception, we don't really know yet how that influences some of those markers. Yeah. That's very interesting. I do want to get, definitely get into some of the more nutritional nuances. Before we get there, I do want to ask something. You mentioned earlier, if you're a competitive athlete, you don't really have the luxury of choosing when you compete. You can't just take training off whenever you want to and just say, well, nope, I, I'm not doing this today or whatever. At the same time, like when I, again, when I was a coach, this is something that was in the back of my mind, but I can tell, you know, maybe one of my, my female athletes felt off or was just off on a day, whatever it is, <laughs> just like, and just like there, you can tell with the guys, but in the back of my head, I'm like, all right. I want to be empathetic here, but I just feel awkward as a guy, to be honest with you. I did not exactly know how to approach it. So I guess for any trainer, what, what's your advice around, around that? And just, you know, continuing to be a good coach, continuing to, you know, try to push our athletes and help them elevate themselves and reach their potential, but being empathetic to the situation they, they may be facing. Yeah, no, I love this question. I, I haven't really thought of it this way, one, because I'm a woman. <laughs> And I don't, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't do direct one-on-one -on -one coaching, but I think it's, it's creating a space where that conversation, like, do you have a, a vulnerable relationship with your athlete where it's not about coddling them? It's saying like you kind of generally have had a menstrual cycle conversation and no, you as a man won't ever experience what I do as a female, but you want to understand how this person feels. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's having those conversations. Because it's not necessarily changing training, it's planning that out. There are times when you should feel, and you know, in this progressive overload piece. And so understanding like what is normal, what is not, which is where a lot of those even perceived exertion or some of those, you know, auto regulation pieces come in, like you noted. 
Yeah, I mean, this is maybe just more of a, a life application, but going into a situation where you you realize you don't know their experience and asking in a way of not coddling, but like, hey, what do you think? And, and honestly, even in this case, a lot of women don't track their menstrual cycle or even know much about their bodies. And so there's some education that they can do, too, to, to be an yeah. for themselves. But in, like I said, it's a relatively new push. I would have never talked about <laughs> this with my coach. Like, oh, you know, like, not having a period is a good thing. It's not. Yeah. That's what we thought. Yeah, and exactly. So you know, both sides can learn. For sure. And the other aspect is a lot of it, a lot of times this was in session and, you know, I couldn't just, I just did not have the ability to take an athlete aside all the time. Sometimes I was the only coach to mm-hmm. like 30, 35 athletes, but you just, you just notice. And I guess, you know, there were, there were times where I had a good rapport with, with the athlete and I would just ask her, like, you tell me, like, Mm-hmm. You, are you okay? Do we need to adjust anything? And I kind of left the ball in her court. And I guess that's the way I, I approached it. But So I just want to kind of make a comment about the, the, the losing loss of the menstrual cycle. So um, an earlier episode that we've had, Ashton Colmoose, she did a pregnancy fitness episode. And I just saw her at a recent conference and we talked about this exact topic. She's like, I thought it was great when I lost my period as an athlete. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to like, you know, you know, deal with all the stuff that comes with it. But yeah, it's not good. <laughs> this is not a good sign if that happens. <laughs> no, there's and there's I mean, I don't know if we have really good long term data, but it's your body. And, and well, the crazy thing, like, you know, what we wish we would have known then, it's so directly related to energy availability. And energy mm. availability is essentially how much you're eating versus expending over how much muscle mass you have. And so it's okay. it's a relatively simple fix, but it's hard. I mean, tell a woman to eat more when they're trying to perform, but it, it just it highlights the role nutrition has in a positive way, which isn't always talked about. It, it you know it's a lot of times focused on body composition when really nutrition is the key to energy availability and maintaining menstrual cycle and overall performance, even across the menstrual cycle. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's turn then to the nutrition side and you've already, you've kind of mentioned a few things that happen, you know, with regards to during the luteal phase, you have this maybe like increase in metabolic rate an increase in muscle protein breakdown rates. Are there anything that just inherently, regardless of the hormonal drive and the menstrual cycle, are there any differences between men and women with regards to you know, I'm thinking like nutrient metabolism, storage, anything like that, that trainers should know about? I mean, like the main inherent difference is just women rely more on fat for fuel. And I say that broadly, because if you take a male and a female and you have them do all out high intensity work, they're both going to use carbohydrate. You know, for so sure. physiologically, you can overcome those things. But realizing fat metabolism plays a role that does and should impact, in my opinion, some work to rest ratios and even baseline caloric profiles. And so what I mean by that is knowing that and and we see this a lot. Like, so, for example, I was an endurance athlete and most endurance athletes eat a lot of carbohydrate, mostly carbohydrate, which carbohydrates are really important. But if I am a female and I rely mostly on fat for fuel, but I'm eating all carbohydrates, it blunts my ability to u- utilize fat for fuel, which will then, therefore, let's say I go and do a performance 
that relies on muscle glycogen, then I will deplete muscle glycogen faster. Yep. And so you can modify what we call metabolic flexibility by slightly lowering carbohydrate, increasing protein, and I would even argue timing our nutrients around our exercise to more maximize those things. So one direct connection I'll make is, so when we look at, most people now know that you should eat something post-workout, whether it be a protein shake or chocolate milk or whatnot. But all of that data was based on men. Hmm. And, and so when we think about those metabolic differences, even down to utilizing more fat for fuel, we've explored some of that nutrient timing for women specifically. And this also goes to kind of the translation. So what we've identified is that nutrient timing or eating something prior to exercise might be more important than after exercise, particularly for women. And it goes against everything the media tells you. So, so many women are doing fasted exercise to maximize fat oxidation or whatever. It's all BS. You actually hmm. use less. You'll, you'll break down more muscle. And I'll take it one step further. It's even more appropriate to have a, a bolus or a serving of protein prior to exercise versus carbohydrate for a woman. That doesn't mean you can't include carbohydrate, but the best way to describe it is women might grab like a banana or some pretzels when in reality we should be getting some Greek yogurt or amino acids as a way to kind of accelerate the benefits post-exercise and during exercise. So what what is it specifically about the female physiology or adaptation about that that makes the pre-workout meal more important or potentially more important? Well, yeah, and I guess I should say the data is actually the same for men should also not do fasted exercise. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, right. But there's some good reviews that show that it's just a little bit more detrimental to women. My theory is it's not just black and white. It's because a woman is underfueled during the day as well. It, you know, they, not only sure. are they not eating before, it just they haven't eaten for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, and so men, I would say the same thing, but what's the mechanism? It goes back to like, if I feed myself carbohydrate before I exercise, then I'm going to just use that carbohydrate and I'm not going to be very metabolically flexible to, to rely on fat, which is what I was meant to do. Obviously the intensity and duration matters, but broadly speaking. For sure. And so then if I swap that and I consume amino acids, then I'm still going to use some carbohydrates. I'm going to, you know, use some branch chain amino acids. Those are oxidized during exercise and I'll utilize some fat for fuel. And so it just allows metabolism to work the way it should. Okay. So let's get, maybe get into some general recommendations with this. So I want to go back for a little bit on the caloric profile, like the like macronutrient ratios and whatnot. So <laughs> when I think about recommendations, a phrase I often think about is that women, women are not just small men. No, yeah. And like, I don't know. I, yeah. And so, but like, that's where a lot of, as far as I know, a lot of the nutrition recommendations are just based off of body size, how, mm -hmm. you know, your grams per kilogram or something like that. And then it's just adjusted that way. And that's, I guess, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this episode with you is like, okay, should those should that be that way or should it be different? So do you typically then recommend a gram per kg or a gram per body weight recommendation on the macronutrients or do you tend to be more percentage based? 
Yeah, no, you definitely want to use gram per kilogram because percentage is purely based on calories. So we have two papers that uh, one in specific that has like some good visuals of how you might do this in food wise. So I can send that to you. But a couple of key differences that we know right now is that it appears that women actually need higher amounts of protein gram per kilogram at baseline. And so I always start with 1.6 gram per kilogram for a woman. And then obviously that's dependent on what they're doing now and some other things, but that's a good baseline to start with. And I typically start with protein because it's harder to get and women are not prioritizing it as much. The other element is, and you know, it depends, this goes in phases, but for, for whatever reason right now, a lot of people avoid carbohydrates, women in particular. Most of us know carbohydrate. One gram of carbohydrate brings in about three grams of water. And so it does cause some weight gain or, you know, some, it makes us a little bit heavier, which is not a bad thing. But for carbohydrate, the thing to think about is our needs do change across the menstrual cycle. So we, we utilize more carbohydrate in the low hormone follicular phase. And so there's some argument that we, you know, if you're an endurance athlete, you want to make sure you're consuming enough. And then in the luteal phase, it also the same idea is that we have a harder time storing muscle glycogen. So again, if you're doing yeah. a marathon, you would need higher amounts. So carbohydrates, I very much based on how much activity that they're doing that relies on muscle glycogen, but just okay. recognizing that it's still very important and those may need to change if you have someone doing higher work. Yeah. The other element, maybe a more practical is women benefit from two to one or one and a half to one gram carbohydrate to protein ratio. And okay. so one application of that is chocolate milk is like a four to one carb to protein ratio, whereas skim milk or white milk is two to one. And so something like a two to one, unless you've just totally depleted muscle glycogen, a two to one is a more appropriate kind of application to a, a female throughout the day. So always gotcha. carrying your protein with your carbohydrates. Okay. And then as the carb recommendations may, may fluctuate, does the, the fat recommendations also like concomitantly fluctuate, I would guess? So fat intake, I always start with about one gram per kilogram and just recognizing like that, that I use fat as more of the last puzzle piece, particularly because it is so calorically dense. Um, mm -hmm. But you never want to go, I, I mean, you, you can go lower depending, like we worked with some physique athletes, but like less than 0.7 gram per kilogram is not really where you want to spend a lot of time. You do have to recognize fat is really important for our hormones, like our estrogen and our progesterone and our immune function, et cetera. So I started about one, but recognizing that we can go slightly lower depending on the goals of the individual. Gotcha. Okay. So then as far as nutrient timing is concerned, what are your recommendations with regards to the nutrient timing piece? Yeah. I mean, based on the data that we have, then I would always tell a woman, I would never have her fast. I would have some protein prior to. And so as someone that like, I can't eat a lot before I exercise, especially before I do any aerobic exercise, mm -hmm. what we've studied a lot is use of an essential amino acid. So whether that be like a powdered supplement, and we study a lot yep. of supplements, I, I think whole foods are amazing, but I can't eat chicken before I go run. <laughs> right. Um, yep. and, and so some sort of an amino acid, whether that's 
the essential amino acid or a whey protein, or if you have a, you know, a more resilient stomach than I do, like a Greek yogurt, really trying to get that high quality protein prior to. And, you know, I think dairy is, is a, an appropriate, you know, <laughs> use, but the one yep. dairy, right, you also get some of those carbohydrates and electrolytes as well. Yeah, for sure. Kind of a nice, a nice mix, a nice package. Of Easily digestible. Obviously, if you're lactose free, yeah. I wouldn't do that, but. Right. options of recognizing into me that's where a lot of the dietary supplements come in it's just it makes some more of that nutrient timing a bit more feasible yeah 100 percent. so yeah let's let's finish up then i guess with a, a discussion on on supplements do we know of any inherent differences in how women might metabolize or utilize certain supplements yeah i don't know about metabolize but a couple of things i would what I would consider, and we've written a paper on this as well, is there are some differences. So for a long time, I studied beta alanine. Yep. And I'll use that as an example that typically if you have um, an individual male or female <clears throat> that does higher amounts of anaerobic exercise and have larger muscles, they're going to have larger amounts of muscle carnosine, which is what beta alanine increases. And therefore, they will be more fatigue resistant. So if you have a woman that has more type 1 fibers and smaller amounts of muscle, they theoretically could see more benefit from beta alanine because now they're going to have like an improved muscle buffering capacity from dietary supplement, which we also sure. see with women as they age. So that's just one example where it's not necessarily being metabolized differently, but it's just those inherent baseline differences that might matter. Yeah. Kind of, like, kind of like a vegetarian with creatine. Yeah. Because yeah. they, you know, inherently have different levels of, of creatine stored already. They will respond maybe, maybe like hyper responders. Right. They just have low amounts yeah. of creatine and they, their your body makes creatine. But if you're not eating animal products, you, you'll be limited on that. Same thing with beta Yeah. Get it through where we can make it through meat. Yeah, for sure. And, and the other one I, I like to bring up first is creatine, <clears throat> partly because not only is it potential muscle differences, but potential brain differences. So there are a lot of differences in women's brains versus men's brains and across the menstrual cycle and as women age. And so one thing that I, I find fascinating about creatine is that it it may be, I don't want to say more effective, but it might just work differently in a woman. So for example, there's some really good data that if, you know, we'll use the term brain fog that a lot of women experience. Creatine can help with brain fog. It's been shown to help symptoms of depression, even if you're on like antidepressants. And we know anxiety and depression are higher in, in women. But if we take that, like there's men that have anxiety and depression too, so they get, can benefit. One study that we just finished with creatine that I think is pretty unique is there's always this feedback of, oh, it causes weight gain and water retention. And consistently, it hasn't shown that in women, but we wanted to take a closer look, especially accounting for the menstrual cycle. And with yeah. a loading dose, which is not generally what I recommend, I generally recommend like three to five grams a day. But with a loading yeah. dose, it it didn't cause an increase in weight compared to a placebo, even across the menstrual cycle. It was less than half a pound in the luteal phase, which is when women hold on to water. And what we saw was that, yeah, fluid retention did increase, but creatine 
part of what the water retention, what, why it happens is creatine is attached to a water molecule and it brings water into the yep. muscle. And, and what we saw is that it helped the fluid instead of being extracellularly, like help, you know, helping us feel like water retention, it actually pulled it into the intracellular muscle, which okay. has potential great application for preventing dehydration and in, in yep. like really helping in that phase and it also was aligned with improved performance so luteal phase is sometimes when we see a slight decrease in performance but creatine helped maintain that interesting mm -hmm. that's very interesting so was that was the loading was it 0.3 grams per kg do you remember yeah, we, the... did 20, we just went 20 grams oh you just did a flat okay okay so yeah i'm glad you mentioned that about creatine because as you know one of the most common misconceptions is that it dehydrates you or that you have to like, oh, you better load water. And and you just perfectly highlighted why that is not the case. <laughs> yeah. So, and like the other thing, awesome. muscle cramp and dehydration. No, like yep. if you it actually does the exact opposite. It does the opposite. This, yeah. Right. And then this this is probably not for your <laughs> listeners, but I like I took it during pregnancy and postpartum. There's a lot of benefit for the brain of your baby. And then it prevents risk of postpartum depression. There's just so many benefits when people are afraid of it. And the best way to describe it is I could either take five grams, a teaspoon of creatine, or I could have an additional five or six chicken breasts on top of my daily protein intake. And people are worried about, you know, kidneys, et cetera. Well, I'm going to have mm. to filter a whole lot more protein by eating it than by taking, you know, a teaspoon of, of creatine. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. So you mentioned... And this is just, I guess, more of an interest on my part. You mentioned that creatine may work differently in female brains. Do we know what that is? We're still trying what? to identify, but there's some thought that the frontal lobe of women have different amounts of creatine than men. You okay. know, like we still like creatine, it shows that it does appear to cross the blood brain barrier and can get in our brain. But yeah. we still don't know. Like, it seems like we might need a slightly higher dose. Mm -hmm. I would look at it more of. Uh, just some of the symptoms that women experience in life, not related to creatine, are a little bit different than men. And creatine, yeah. creatine can target those. Another yeah. way to think about it is like if you're underslept. So if you have some cognitive brain fog, anxiety and depression, you'll see better benefits opposed to if you have plenty of sleep and have no brain, no symptoms of anxiety. Yeah, for sure. Are there any other supplements that come to mind that would be of, of, of interest? So I'll go back to essential amino acids. So we have some interesting data that is suggesting that. And this, I would say, is more for maybe women my age. I will tell you how old I am. But no, like I am not perimenopause yet. But just as the it's appearing that there's a pretty big difference in whole body protein turnover and our ability to use protein from that pre to perimenopause and on. And so an essential amino acid is just more highly absorbable and utilized. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. something like that versus maybe, you know, a plant-based source or maybe even a whey. So I would recommend that. And yes, I mean, I'm a supplement nerd. There's a lot of things I think would benefit women. Yeah. We take vitamin D, a little bit different mm -hmm. for men, just based on bone. Would say the same yeah, for, for sure. magnesium. There's some really interesting data as women age our magnesium levels go up which impacts sleep and then i on the last i don't know probiotics are different for men and women our gut is different hmm. so the strain specific and then i would say omega-3 kind of some of the same things that i mentioned before related to brain inflammation 
those types of things, heart health. So is that just dosage or type as well for the omega-3s? Or maybe it's not even just dosage, but consistency. Like it would be a higher priority. So one of the things that we know as women age is that their risk for cardiovascular disease significantly increases. And we know that omega-3 helps with vasodilation and prevention of, you know, triglycerides and, and a number of things. And so I could just see it being more important. However, if you had a man that has a risk for cardiovascular disease, I would tell him this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then do we know the probiotic strains? Have that Has that been identified as far as which strains may be? Uh, and when this episode releases, there will be a probiotic episode up. So... If you have not listened to that with Lacey yet, go ahead and listen to that. <laughs> if she mentions a strain and you're like, wait, what is bifidobacterium? Then Lacey explains all that. So yeah, do we know the strain differences? Well, no, I mean, yes, there's some good data. I would say the best way to describe it is, for example, women have much higher incidences of like irritable bowel syndrome. Okay. And so there's specific strains for that versus traveler's diarrhea or something like post-antibiotics. And unfortunately, like in the U.S., most of the time we get probiotics, they're, they lose some of their efficacy by the time we get them. Yep. So it's more of like a more practical takeaway is shooting for a multi-strain probiotic, more yep. thinking about women or doing some research. Like if you have a very key, like, for example, if you have a yeast infection, that's not going to happen sure. in a male. There's like a probiotic strain. that can help. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Actually, that's very similar to what Lacey said in her episode. So again, that, that Lacey Hall has that episode if you want to dive deeper into the probiotics. So as we finish up, Abby, can you just give, I guess, you know, what are some take-homes here? So actionable that the, the trainer can, you know, obviously you've given a lot, but just to kind of recap everything and and bring it all together, what are what are some like big take-home things that the, the coach or the trainer can if they haven't started thinking about, start thinking about or just make sure they're paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key questions that I would ask the, the coaches and the trainers and their athletes is just let's talk more about periods. Let's not make it a taboo topic, even mm. oral contraception. There's lots of reasons people take birth control and sometimes it actually makes an athlete feel better. And so having that conversation of what it is and then educating ourselves too. And I'm still educating myself. Like, what what are the things that come along with that, opposed to making it the elephant in the room? Like, the more we talk about it, the less. It, it, I mean, it is physiology. So, you know, <laughs> right. Those would be the 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 two key things. You know, is educating yourself, but also being an advocate for your athlete, so that they know that they can educate and understand their bodies better. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we're normalizing a period talk, I guess, is the is part of what we're doing. Hopefully it's important and it makes sense that as more research, you know, you mentioned a lot of supplement research is based off of men. Well, as more research gets done in, in, in a female population, we are going to learn things and we're going to keep learning things, which is which is good for everybody. So as we finish up, you mentioned you, you're at UNC Chapel Hill. You have a grad program, right, in, in exercise science or well, what, what kind of is going on with, with, with your program? Yeah, so we have a master's program and a PhD program, and I'm always looking for really good students. And so if you want to learn the research process, it's a very big part of my job. 
So happy to to chat with you on that. And then, you know, I mean, I think I'm always, always looking for, I, I love doing these things because I always get research ideas, but then also yep. opportunities to educate is, is my favorite thing. So no, I don't have anything to sell or promote, just science. <laughs> <laughs> and yep. I, I'm happy to, you know, share a couple of the papers I mentioned that are a bit practical. Yeah. Yeah. And I will definitely link the papers. I, I think I know what papers you're referring to. So I will. I will confirm with you and I'll definitely link those in the show notes. Yeah. Any, any student, young professional listening to this, if you're, if you are interested in academia, if you want to get into the research world, if you just want to research something that down the line will have practical implications for what we recommend in training and in nutrition, definitely check out, you know, Dr. Smith Ryan's lab. And I mean, you have several grad students who are out in the in the world now. I see them at NSCA conferences. It's really awesome to see. It, it's it's great. So yeah, again, if you're a student or a, a young professional and you're thinking about your undergrad or master's PhD program, I would highly recommend to, to check out Abby's lab. So Abby, thank you for joining me today. And uh, this was some great information. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me and for letting us talk about all things female. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.